pledge allegiance to Christ, crucified and risen, and to his kingdom, which already is and is still to come, earth as it is in heaven. I pledge allegiance to the Spirit, companion and guide, and to the Spirit's church, a single body of diverse parts bound by a common breath. I will, I will seek, seek truth, love, love my enemy, and empty myself for others. I will forgive as I have been forgiven. I pledge all I have and all I am to Christ's law of love. For the sake of Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my only hope, let it be so. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, Victory belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and always. Amen. Then one of the elders said to me, Who are these people wearing white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he said to me, These people have come out of great hardship. They've washed their robes and made them white in the Lamb's blood. This is the reason they are before God's throne. They worship him day and night in his temple, and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They won't hunger or thirst anymore. No sun or scorching heat will beat down on them, because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to the springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Counterintuitive as it seems in 2020, we've been talking a lot at Trinity this year about the future. Specifically, we've been talking about what it means that the church is called to be a future people. We're meant to learn from Jesus what God's future kingdom looks like and to start living the life of that future now as a witness to the rest of the world of what's in store for everything. One of the things that we're told about God's future kingdom is that it will include people from every nation and tribe and tongue. This news actually came as a great surprise to many of Jesus's first followers. After all, God's story up until the first century had seemed pretty focused on just one nation, Israel and one ethnic group, the Jewish people. Uh, But Israel's prophets had always told them that another future was coming. Uh, The prophet Micah had memorably put it like this. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. 
so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the day the Christian church begins, that future that Micah and the prophets talked about uh, finally begins to take shape. Uh, People from every nation and people group and language hear the story of Jesus. At the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, this book that gives us a vision of God's future, we see all of those people and nations gathered together before the throne of God. If there's one thing that we can clearly say about God's future kingdom, it's that God's kingdom is multicultural. But, uh, well, it's pretty easy to celebrate that revelation image of the tribes and the nations gathered together in heavenly worship. It's a harder question to ask what it means to begin to live the life of that future now. I mean, uh, what exactly does it look like for us to be citizens of a multicultural kingdom? Well, I think it might help us to begin with some basic definitions. Uh, What even is a culture? Uh, Culture touches almost everything. How we eat, how we dress, work, play, communicate, what we value, how we structure our families. Uh, You might just think of culture as just the way we do things. Uh, A while back, a friend of mine moved from a major west coast city to a city in the deep south. One day, he went on a rant about driving in the American South. They're terrible drivers, he told me. The traffic is always backed up because everyone is constantly stopping in the middle of the road to let other people pull out in front of them. In his experience, this behavior wasn't just strange, but crazy. In in the West Coast city he came from, survival of the fittest was how good driving works. That, my friends, is culture. Culture can be really hard to see from the inside. If I asked you about the culture of China, you might be able to answer me much more easily than if I asked you about the culture of America, even if you've lived here your entire life. That's because whatever you're used to simply registers as normal. Uh, But even if you can't name it exactly, you're already a participant, not just in one culture, but in more than one. A a national culture, a regional culture, an ethnic or racial culture, even a Christian or a Mennonite culture. Uh, These cultures impact the things we like, the things we value, the things we take as normal, how we think things should be done. Now, having a culture isn't a bad thing, quite the opposite. Best I can tell from looking at the rest of creation, God is a really big fan of life and color and diversity. I mean, look at fish. Look at dogs. Look at plants. Variation is good. It makes life stronger and more resilient and more beautiful and interesting. It's also true, though, that because humans are flawed, the cultures we create together have strengths and weaknesses. 
There are some things about God and the world that our normal way of thinking and operating puts clearly in our line of sight. But there are other truths that our cultural blinders keep us from noticing. This is one reason why it's so important for anyone who really desires to grow up as a follower of Jesus to engage in cross-cultural relationships. Our kingdom brothers and sisters from other cultures can help us see what lies in our blind spots. We need each other in the body of Christ if we're going to mature in God's image and learn to see God in the world more truly as they are. Um, Years ago, when I lived for a time in Uganda, I I would often wake up in the morning well before dawn to find a group of friends sitting and waiting outside my window. It seemed so odd to me at first, but uh, eventually one of them told me what was going on. It turned out they were worried about me. In their culture, no one sleeps alone. And they were concerned about my loneliness, lying alone sleeping at night in my room. Now, I've thought about this a lot since returning to the U.S., where over a fourth of adults live alone, and where loneliness is reaching epidemic rates. Could it be that my Ugandan friends understand something about human flourishing that we in our giant houses and king-sized beds have missed? It's been my experience that no one is better at helping us locate our idols than someone from outside our culture. They ask us good questions like, why do you work so much? Or why do you treat your spouse that way? Or who is paying the price for that personal freedom that you value so much? They remind us of the collective when we are focused on the individual or the other way around. One of the beauties of God's kingdom as a place where cultures meet is that we actually have a chance to discover better ways. We can have our idols challenged or our eyes opened. We can find a path to new healing or to new freedom. Of course, the fundamental condition that's required to receive the gifts that people of other cultures have to offer us is really humility. Most people tend to spend our time largely with other people who are mostly like us. People who share our own distinctive combination, not just of one culture, but of multiple cultures. For example... American, white, middle-class, married, Mennonite. It's easy to get a distorted impression of the world, to start believing that everyone thinks like us and values what we do, that our experience of the world, our way of life is normal. And not just normal, but best. It takes real humility to begin to recognize that our normal is not actually the human neutral. It takes even more humility to to consider that there may actually be some better possibilities out there, some things to learn that we haven't discovered yet. 
as citizens of a new kingdom made up of many tribes and cultures. It's particularly important to beware of confusing culture and theology. Now, I'll never forget a class I took in seminary on the book of Acts. All of the students in this class were Americans, but we were different ethnicities. We came from different regions. We grew up in very different denominations. And the professor opened up this class on Acts with a question about what Christian leadership should look like. Um, The descriptions that we gave of a good leader and a good leadership structure in the church were all over the map. And what was really amazing to me was that every person could make a solid biblical case for their answer. Uh, We all basically agreed on core matters of Christian character. Uh, But beyond that, it turned out that many of our ideas of how leadership should work and how it should be structured had more to do with cultural preferences than it did with clear biblical instructions. Uh, The words that we were using to talk to each other were theological words, but our assumptions and preferences that underlied them were cultural I've been in many conversations through the years where people argued passionately for what they believed was proper Christian worship. I've heard some people say that clapping in church is disrespectful to God. I've heard other people say that lack of spontaneity in worship is a sign of spiritual death. The reality is that Christian worship has looked vastly different in different ages of the church. And much of what Christians argue about is culture masquerading as theology. The tragic result is that cultural differences end up creating major obstacles to Christian relationship and to the unity of the church. They end up causing us to make false judgments about each other that God would disavow. If you can't describe your own culture, whether that culture is national, racial, class, or denomination, there's a good chance that's because you're simply taking your culture as normal or neutral. If that's the case, it's so, so important to learn to recognize some of the features of the cultures that you're swimming in, some of their values and preferences. It's important because it's only when we understand some of that cultural water that we're swimming in that we can start to distinguish our cultural preferences from actual kingdom virtues. This is one of the keys to learning how to live and worship in unity as one people of many tongues and tribes. In addition to humility, it seems like a a second fundamental virtue or condition that allows us to flourish as the multicultural family of Christ is hospitality. Hospitality at its core is making room for others. It's one thing to put out a sign in front of your church or on your website that says, God loves and welcomes everyone. It's another thing to actually make room at the church's table for people with different tastes and different ideas about proper table manners. 
Not too often in the church, we've invited people to the table, and then we've proceeded them to give them that sort of squinty side eye because they had the audacity not to dress or sound exactly like us. Hospitality begins with the understanding that we honor Christ when we honor each other. And hospitality grows when we start to actually move over our own chairs and make real space for other people to bring their gifts and contributions to the table. Even, especially, when what they have to contribute changes the flavor of the feast. Imagine the kingdom of God sort of like a painting. The canvas will look incredibly flat and dull and nothing at all like the vibrancy of God. If one color gets painted over all the rest because one group is convinced that that color is best and in fact the only color that anything should ever be. A monochromatic kingdom isn't God's kingdom at all. It's actually a portrait of what the world looks like before Pentecost comes, before the Spirit of God gets involved. On the day of Pentecost, the day the church begins, the first gift the Holy Spirit gives the church is tongues. And this is no coincidence. Up until now, the people of God have largely been one people, speaking one cultural language. But now the people of God are many. The Spirit gives the gift of tongues so that the citizens of God's new kingdom can learn to understand each other, living one story, painting one portrait with every brush and with every pigment they possess. May that kingdom come in full color, reflecting every ounce of the artistry of God. Let's pray together. God, creator, you are an incredible artist. From the fish, to the birds, to the dogs, to the flowers, to human beings. You have made such a wild and wonderful variety of things. We praise you of of the goodness of all that is. Particularly for the goodness of your image that has been stamped in in so many vibrant um, shades and practices across humanity. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for when we have made of you an idol of ourselves. When we've taken our, our preferences, good ones, bad ones, neutral ones, all of them, and cast them up as if they were the wholeness of your character and image. Forgive us when we've, we've painted as if one color is the only color needed on this canvas. Lord, we we pray that your spirit would sow in us the humility to learn from others. The desire, the longing to, to see every brush and every color of paint contributing to the full portrait of this kingdom. We pray that you would give us the generosity of spirit to really practice hospitality truly, to make space at the table so that each person can bring 
Each group can bring the beauty of what they have. We thank you so much for the grace of new beginnings, second tries, third tries, again and again, as we learn together what it means to be one people of many tribes and tongues and nations, professing one Lord and singing one song of praise to the one who's rescued us all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.